Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the gift of music and song so that we can take it and surrender it back to you. And we pray that you are blessed and that you are blessed with our hearts and our worship this morning. And we ask that you would um, show us the truth of your word and help us to understand it, not just cognitively in our minds, Lord, but that we would uh, be changed by it and, and live this out. I ask that this passage would make a difference in our lives and um, not just be another verse or another sermon or a time where we sort of half tune in and half tune out. Uh, capture our attention this morning and uh, engage us with your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most difficult things about Christianity, um, week in and week out, is we, we come to church and we hear about this awesome God, we sing about this awesome God, right? I mean, we, and then we read, a, you know, we turn to passages in Scripture where He's uh, healing sick people, He's collapsing walls around a city that, that Israel needs to get into, He's parting a Red Sea, you know, for His people to walk through. He's raining bread from heaven for people that are hungry. Then they're thirsty and water comes out of a rock. You know, and we, and we read about these stories and we hear about these stories. We're like, wow, that's great. What a great God. But then we go home and where's your water? Where's your bread? How come your sea isn't parting? And I'm not saying that all of those episodes, you know, the Bible is teaching that God will part every sea for you. But we worship this God that we believe is that awesome, that he can do things that are that great. But secret, you know, the, the, the best kept Christian secret, and it's no secret, we just don't talk about it, is that we really don't expect him to show up in big ways in our regular week. This is why we depend more on doctors. And when we get a bad diagnosis, we can't sleep at night because the doctor's word is over what God can do. I mean, am I just preaching to myself? I mean, this is, this is the rub, isn't it? And then little by little, we begin to tune out of the sermons or the Bible studies because we really don't believe it that much. Because during the week, that God that I heard about on Sunday doesn't seem like he's showing up here. This chapter that we're going into in the book of Matthew is a tough chapter. Because it kind of blows away sort of our parameters and our expectations. And for an American preacher like me that just wants to keep everything nice and neat, it's difficult to preach. Because when I look at this passage, I realize that it, it, it destroys those categories. Now, you might be someone who, you know, is really struggling with something. You know, it might be physical. It might be an illness. It might be a disease. It could be relational your marriage, relationship with your mom, relationship with your kids, um, a co-worker. It could be uh, financial. There's, there are big obstacles that we really wrestle with, and, and we, we, we wonder, how come God's not showing up? Why doesn't Jesus show up? Why isn't he showing up in this situation? It, it might be because we're missing something. And I, and I want to look at that in this verse. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, 
We're asking the simple question, why is it that in day-to-day Christian life, when we're outside of these walls, sometimes it seems like Jesus doesn't show up? He shows up in the Bible, shows up in big ways in the Bible, but, you know, in my life, not really. I just kind of have to grind it out like every, everyone else, whether they know Christ or not. Why is that? Is he not there? Is he different today than yesterday? Does he not care? Does he not see it? None of those make sense. So what is it? Matthew chapter 13, you'll remember Jesus just finished all of these parables. You remember those parables as we walk through them? He's describing what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the church is going to be like in this world. Okay? And it's going to be like that because he leads the church. Because of who Jesus is. Then you get to the end in verse 53. At the end of chapter 13... Drop all the way down to verse 53. I just finished all these tough parables, these, these uh, real tough teachings on, on what the church will be like. And it says, when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, this is what the astonished people said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now, don't read that like, oh, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? That's great. No, you got to read it like, oh, where did he get this? Like, where does he come off? Where does he get this wisdom? How do I know that? Read the next line. Isn't this the carpenter's son? In other words, you know, he doesn't come from a long line of rabbis. No one ever heard of his dad. His dad would fix the rafters on roofs. When there was a leak, his dad would fix your table. He's the neighborhood guy that would come over and fix your table. Now, that's honorable. That's an honorable task. A guy that can fix things, a guy that's a carpenter, that can work with wood, shape and fashion wood into something usable, that's great. But don't come up in our synagogue and start preaching. You're a carpenter, man. That's that's what they're saying. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? This is why people do your mama jokes. Because if, if they can own your mom, if they know something about your mom, or you know, it's, it's, it takes you down a few notches. It's better than making fun of you if I can make fun of your mom. Now, they're not making fun of his mom, but they're saying, hey, we know your mom. You know, and so that brings you down a few notches in our view. This little snot-nosed kid that we used to help your mom with is going to stand up there and tell us something. That's where they're going with this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, James and Joseph, and Simon and Judas? Not the Judas that betrays him, but none other Judas. Common name. So is Simon. Aren't these his brothers? And are not all his sisters with us? Like maybe his brothers moved on and went to different regions or whatever, but the sisters were still there, like in the synagogue. They're his sisters, and there's this guy. And so we just, we know this guy. We know what his family is like. We know how his sisters behave sometimes. We know how his brothers are. They're not, they're not walking on water or anything, you know. They're not turning things into uh, water into wine and stuff like that. There's, these are just normal people. And this guy's going to stand up there and teach. Almost makes you wonder, what did he stand up there and teach that ticks them off like this? You know, if I stood up here and, and preached 
And then a bunch of you are like, man, who's this guy, man? He's, he's Puerto Rican but doesn't speak Spanish. You know, he's, he's bald-headed. You know, he, I don't know. You just start coming up with stuff. Why? Not because those are the real reasons. It's because you don't want to hear what I'm teaching, right? This is, this is what was going on here. This was, this was not that he didn't look the part, but they're, they're coming up with reasons to reject what he's saying. And he said, verse 57, Oh, then he said, uh, you know, his brothers, his sisters, at the end of verse 56, where then did this man get all these things? Where's he come up with this stuff? He didn't get it from a rabbi. He's not from a long line of Bible experts. He's not a scribe. So where did he get this? He was putting together a table one day, and oh, I'm going to teach this in the synagogue. You know, they're just, they're just unwilling to receive the fact that he's anything more than a man. Anything more than just uh, a man who works with wood and carpentry. Verse 57, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. In other words, a prophet will go anywhere and preach and people are like, wow, that was powerful, unless he's at home. Because when he's at home, he's not honored. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. I don't know if you've experienced this. Uh, Maybe you've led a Bible study. Maybe you've taught Sunday school. Uh, Maybe it's not even the Bible. Maybe you're really good at your job. You you, You help your company that you work for figure out its financial problems. That's what you do for a living. But then you go home and your mom is trying to count coupons and you're like, you know what, mom, the best thing you can do financially, oh, shut up. No, because you're little snot. No, but then they turn on TV and some guy with rolled up sleeves and a crooked tie is going, oh, oh, you should invest in this. You should invest in that. And then they go, oh, that's what I'm going to do. And you're like, I just said that. Yeah, but he's on TV. She changed your diapers. It doesn't make sense. That's just how people are. Uh, we have this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that? Right? A lot of times that's true. Okay? Uh, you can have a pastor stand up in front of, you know, hundreds of people, thousands of people. But when he goes home, he's just Billy. You know? He's not Bill Hybels. He's Billy. You know? But if he stands up in front of a thousand people and tells them this is how you're supposed to live, wow, that's a lot of people listening to him. And they go and, and they listen. They're like, man, that's our pastor. I just want to go to a family reunion with Bill Hybels, you know, or any one of these guys, you know, like a family reunion with John MacArthur. Hey, Johnny, you know, uh, his parents are maybe not around anymore. I don't know. Are not all his sisters with us? Where does this guy get all these things? And they took offense. And Jesus said to them, Prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. And then look at verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Why didn't he do a lot of work in his hometown? Why didn't he do all the healings in his hometown that he did in other places? Why didn't he do big things to prove to them that he's more than a man? Why didn't he prove it to them? Why didn't he, why didn't he just do amazing things and wow them with his works? Because of their unbelief. It's right there. Right? Because of their unbelief. Now, you know, you and I, we can go, well, why is it that we show up at church and we hear about this kind of God and then we go home and that kind of God doesn't show up? 
Maybe because of our unbelief. You know, this is why it's a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle, you know. You feel like you don't believe because he's not showing up, but in reality he's not showing up because in the first place you never really gave him that benefit of the doubt. You never said, man, I serve that Red Sea splitting God. I serve that God. That God that told Joshua, don't worry, just be strong, be courageous, obey what I say, and you don't have to worry about anything else. I will take care of that wall. I'm going to make you do some goofy things and march around it and blow some trumpets and stuff. Just do what I say. But it's not the trumpet blast that make the wall fall down. I'm going to make that wall fall down. And we go, man, I serve that God. That's the God I pray to when I say, my Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. That's the God I'm praying to, and I know that. That's different from going, well, let me go home and try this and see if it works. You know, that's not belief. And so when Jesus, Jesus verbally explains you know, that he's not being received, and then Matthew makes the note, like an insider's note, because Matthew was one of his guys, right? The reason why he didn't do many mighty works there is because of their unbelief. That's why. Their unbelief blocked what he otherwise would have done. He would have done certain things, but because they didn't believe, it's not because he can't do it. It's because I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to prove it to you. Can I prove it to you guys? Look, I can make a, a stone turn into birds. Look, I can do magic tricks. Look, put some water right there. I'll walk on it. No, I'm not going to come down to your level. You need to understand that the reason why I stand up in the synagogue and teach stuff like this is not, I don't need a long line of scribes. I don't need a long line of rabbis. I'm God. If you can't wrap your mind around that, I'm not going to do parlor tricks for you. And so their unbelief effectively blocked what Jesus would have otherwise done for them. I think the danger we have today still, just like they did, is we come to Jesus and try to hoist upon him a, like a preconceived framework of what we think Jesus is, of who we think Jesus should be, of how we think he is. And we, and we wrap that around Jesus and we say, that's, that's Jesus, and we put them in this comfortable box, this box that's acceptable. Isn't that what they were trying to do? Whoa, 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 whoa. The rational reasoning here is that he, he's... God is either in him or he's special or God has given him something special. But no, 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 we don't want to do that because if we surrender that, then we've got to listen to what he's saying. So it can't be that. We're going to call him something else. He's a carpenter's son. He's just a guy from the town. He's off his hinges. It can't be that what he's saying is true. And so they put parameters on him. And I think this is what a lot of people do with Jesus today. Isn't Jesus, isn't he the guy... Isn't he the guy that started all those crusades and started killing people? Isn't he the guy whose followers I just read in the paper the other day bombed an abortion clinic? Isn't that Jesus' followers? Jesus, isn't that the guy that Hollywood pokes fun of all the time, that Bill Maher makes fun of? Didn't I watch a documentary where they go to these you know, Christian camps and they just, these people are just idiots? That Jesus? The Jesus that has a bunch of hypocrites following him? The Jesus that people go and picket and says, you know, God hates homosexuals and stuff like that. That Jesus? Well, no, not that, not that Jesus. But if you want to ignore what Jesus is saying, you can come up with all kinds of crazy excuses too. But they had them. They had their excuses. Theirs was over-familiarity. Another danger that's related to this, I think, is when we become so familiar with what we know about Jesus... That it doesn't rock our world anymore. It doesn't astonish us. It's just, eh, Jesus, you know. 
And then that's how we pray. We pray on astonishing prayers, you know. Like, eh, Jesus, I just pray that you would fix this. Anyway, let me call another doctor, you know. I'm not saying don't talk to doctors. I'm just saying the, the energy that we put into what man can do to help us versus the energy that we put into what God can do to help us. We're, we're astonished by this doctor's degrees on the wall. We're not that astonished that we can pray to a God who created the human body. That's not, that's astonishing. And so if we peel back the layers of familiarity, of excuses, of things that we try to wrap Jesus in and put him in a comfortable corner, I mean, who is Jesus to you? Is he a historical figure? (laughs) You know, was he a good teacher? Was he a moral teacher? Is he a good role model? Is he a political figure? You know, no matter, in every political party, you got somebody trying to say Jesus is backing them up. You know? But you got political parties like, the president is evil. What would the president say? The president says he's Christian. So it doesn't matter what side of the fence you're on or what political party you're on, everyone's going to try to stick Jesus in their pocket and pull him out when it's going to try to bring some votes. I mean, so, so who, who is Jesus? Do we do that? Is Jesus the guy we pull out when we're yelling at our kids? That's not what the Bible says. You, Jesus is going to, ooh. But really, the rest of our lives don't really match that Jesus is Lord. Do we just Facebook people with Jesus and guilt trip them? Click this or you're going to hell or whatever, you know, those ridiculous, like, if you don't like this, God hates you. What is that stuff? You know, come over and tell me about Jesus. Don't just, like, throw stuff in the feed, right? All right, now I'm going to probably get, get some flack for that. Hey, I like, I like those posters, you know, but I don't know. Hey, you know, some of those are cool. But, but, but what is Jesus really? Um. When, when I was in Rome, you know, and, and Serbia, you walk into these Roman Catholic churches and these Orthodox churches, and man, I'm not saying everybody in an Orthodox church is spiritually lost. Uh, I think maybe they're confused at best. But there's all this stuff about Christianity that's not really Christianity, you know? You can go to the little store in the entrance to the sanctuary and buy a little candle with a painting on it, or you can buy special beads to help you pray. And I just want to tell them, man, it's not beads and pictures and stained glass. You, have, you can have a relationship with Jesus who's real. Jesus is not a historical figure. When we say historical figure, we mean someone who's in the past. Winston Churchill is a historical figure. Jesus is present now. In Matthew 18, he told his leaders, as church leaders, when you have a difficulty in trying to decide a church matter, when you've got someone who needs church discipline and you're like, man, do we kick him out of the church? Do we keep him? Do we call him a brother or is he a pagan? That's going to be a difficult decision to make. That's when Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I'm with you. It's like I'm sitting in that room with you again, disciples, and I'm there with you. I'm going to tell you what to do. I'm going to show you what to do. I'm going to lead you. I'm present with you. When Jesus left the disciples, he said, I'll, I'll always be with you. Go and make disciples and I'll always be with you. He doesn't mean like metaphorically like... You know, I'll be with you like, uh, I don't know, like uh, Star Wars, you know. I'm like, man, how come this spirit of Obi-Wan Kenobi always shows up like after the fact? Help me out, man. You know, all right, he helped out or use the force. But yeah, you're not helping me, though. You know, you're not helping me guide that rocket into the Death Star. You just use the force. Thanks for the reminder. But where's the help? You know, Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, helping you. And via the Holy Spirit, I'm empowering you. 
The Bible tells us it's God that works mightily within you as you're working. And, and so it's not, he's not out there somewhere. It's not he left the disciples and we'll see him again. And in the meantime, we're just kind of grind it out, guys. We'll just grind it out, encourage ourselves with cute little sermons, and just go home and grind it out. He's with you. Do you believe that? Because if there's unbelief, it blocks Jesus from doing work in your life. Is that not the conclusion from this passage? And I, it makes me uncomfortable because I'm like, well, I believe, you know. <laughs> Maybe not the kind of belief that it's talking about. It's not saying if you were given a theology exam that you check off the right boxes. It's saying that you really know it, that you understand that he's with you. You understand who Jesus is. So faith is required for Jesus' power. We see that in verse 58. He didn't do the, a lot of mighty works because of their unbelief. You flip that. If they had unbelief, he would have done mighty works there. A lot of mighty works. Grant Osborne, I was reading a commentary, and I actually had him as a professor at Trinity. He wrote this line. I wrote it down. I, I know I normally don't read quotes to you, but listen. He said, I have often thought this is the reason why we see fewer miracles here than in the third world. Now, I don't know if any of you have friends that live somewhere that's you know, run down, dilapidated, poor, uh, just very much not like America. Or maybe you know of missionaries, or maybe you jump online and you read reports that missionaries, there's like a lot of miracles happening. You know, there's, there's people that get healed, there, there, there's people getting saved left and right, and let's just remember the biggest miracle is when someone comes to Christ, not when someone's leg the fungus went away, all right? The biggest miracle is a conversion. And people all over the world, the church is growing faster in other parts of the world than here. In South America, it's growing rapidly. You know, we know how it is, um, in, you know, in Korea, they have these massive churches. Um, in Africa, the church is exploding. And, and, and here, it's kind of like, eh, you know? We don't expect it, we don't really receive it, we don't receive it, so then we don't expect it, and it's just this perpetuating cycle of unbelief. But they believe more innocently in other places. They don't have all the surpassing knowledge that we have, they don't have all their degrees. You know, when I went and taught at this school in Serbia, I'm like, are they getting credits for this? When do they get the exam? You know, I was being real OCD about it, maybe because, you know, I, when I teach at Moody and stuff, you've got to cross all your T's and dot all your I's, but over there I was like, well, just go up there and teach. All right, you know, when do they have the exam? Well, I'll give it to them later. Uh, you know, but, but over here we're so stiff and rigid, and I think sometimes we miss out on the, the movement of the Spirit and just that, that naivety, that, that innocent faith that, that allows God to show up in huge, mighty ways versus here, we, we don't really believe it. We don't really believe that. What we really believe is that God did that in the past and will do that in the future maybe, but right now is a God that's kind of checked out. He's kind of an absent dad in the house. Yeah, he's around, but, you know, if you ask him to play with you, he's always too busy. Eh, that's how we view him. When Jesus is saying that, that when, when there's unbelief and you don't believe, when there's not faith, it blocks what I would otherwise do. Now, I do have to... Um, I do have to put a couple of uh, caveats here that I noticed in this passage, in this text. The first one is that um, 
when you look at the end of the next chapter, can you drop your eyes over there? At the end of 14, now in between here, a lot of things happen. John the Baptist gets beheaded. Jesus multiplies a couple of loaves of bread, a couple of pieces of fish to feed thousands of people. After that, the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, and then Peter comes out and walks on the water. So big, big faith episodes are happening in this chapter. Then the end of the chapter, in verses 34 to 36, is kind of like the anti-paragraph to the one we were just in. In his hometown, he couldn't do a lot of works because there was unbelief. Well, what happens when he's not in his hometown and people do believe? Look at verse 34. When they, Jesus and his disciples, had crossed over the lake, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region. They didn't have, you know, Twitter. So this is on foot, running around, knocking on doors, going to get everybody in that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as, as, many as touched it were made well. So th- this is the complete opposite. He's not even going, now gather around guys, watch this. He's just walking. He's walking and people are pressing through the crowds. They're going to get their cousin, their cousin's cousin, their friend's uncle's aunt that they heard had some kind of cerebral palsy look kind of condition or something. Get that person over here and they're strapping them on their backs and they're dragging them on mats. They're giving piggyback rides, whatever they can do to get their sick, ailing people. And if they can just get through the crowd and touch, maybe they heard about the woman in chapter 9 that pressed through the crowd and touched his garment. And he's like, whoa, you know, power went out of me and it healed that woman. And then word gets out and like, man, next time we see Jesus, we're not even going to, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to go touch his garment. And so there was faith in this place. And because there was faith, it was was miraculous things were happening. All they needed was to touch Jesus. They understood who he was. It says they recognized him. No, they weren't just touching random people's garments. They knew there was something about Jesus. There was something about him that was otherworldly. There was something about him that was different than just a man. And if I can just press in and touch him, the, the, the belief is there in place. I know that if I can get to him, if I have access to him, that his power can work mightily in me. And it was the opposite of the unbelief. Well, why, does, why does Matthew do that? He shows you unbelief and how Jesus couldn't do anything there. In the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the next couple episodes where, you know, he multiplies bread and feeds thousands of people. Walks on water, causes Peter to walk on water too. Well, what, what is that? I mean, it's like, he, I'm so awesome that if you have access to me, this awesome power to bless and to work mightily in you will spill out and feed you, will spill out and float you, will spill out and activate something in your life that that couldn't happen if you didn't know Jesus. But you have to know Jesus. There has to be faith. There has to be belief. And so, verse 36, I wanted to point out. They didn't just go up to him and touch his garment. But verse 36, chapter 14, verse 36. When they brought all the sick to him, they implored him. What does that mean? They begged, they pleaded, they asked really, really urgently, you know. They weren't like, excuse me, mister, do you think that maybe, kind of, like if you have time, eh, I could touch your garment? 
Jesus, please, please, before you take another step, I can't catch up to you. Can you just slow down a second? We just want to touch, we just want to touch the little tassels, like the little tassels that hang at the end of your rope. Can we just touch that little piece of the garment? Because I know it'll make my friend healed. They're imploring him. So this isn't just God is so awesome that if you just believe it in a theoretical sense, he'll just randomly show up in your life. You need to implore. And the whole rest of the Bible will teach you prayer is necessary. Prayer doesn't make God powerful. Prayer shows that you're demonstrating that faith that's necessary for him to show up in your life. But sometimes we have one or the other. We have big faith. Maybe we don't pray that much. We pray a lot. We show up to prayer meetings, but the faith isn't there. But prayer needs to be the vehicle for faith, not a hollow vehicle with nothing in it and just kind of empty cars, you know, carts going up to the Lord, but, but faith. And so you come to the Lord with the understanding that he is the same God of the Old Testament. He's the same God of the, the creation account. He's the same God in Revelation. He's the same God that showed up at Jericho. All those episodes, he's the same God. And you show up and you implore him. You ask him. You plead with him to show up. And that, that, that's how God shows up mightily in your life. So when we, sh- when we ask ourselves, why is God not showing up in our lives the question should be, where's my faith, and do I implore him with that faith? Because when we look at these two passages, you have to think that Matthew is doing something here intentional. These aren't just random episodes. He's trying to show you the contrast of the town that couldn't believe, and God didn't do a lot of things there, and the town that did believe, and how much Jesus did there. How do you, I mean, you have to walk away and go, okay, so if I want God to show up big in my life, if I want Jesus to do mighty things in my life, I need to come to him with this belief this faith that's required. And I need to implore him with that faith. I need to pray with that faith. Not just have that faith, but act on it and pray to him. And before we wrap up, I I have one more thing to kind of tweak this a little bit. You've noticed that I've tried to be careful. And when I say when he was in that town, I don't want to say He didn't do any miracles there because of their unbelief. What I've tried to say is he didn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Why do I say that? Well, because that's what it says. Chapter 13, verse 56, the last, or 58. I can't read my font anymore. 58. And he did not do many mighty miracles there. Not, he didn't do any. He didn't do many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, what does that tell me? I love that, Pat. I love that that's there. I love that that word many is there. Just the little M in front of the any. It makes, makes the biggest difference in the world. If that M wasn't there, if it said any, Jesus didn't do any miracles there because of their unbelief, and then in the next place they had belief and then he did miracles. Then, then we might be swayed to believe in something like the prosperity gospel, right? Because then it would be a strict formula. If you believe, God will do. If you don't believe, God won't do. But it's not a strict formula. How do we know that? Well, let's take one case scenario first. The person who believes and God still doesn't do it. Does that happen? How about Job? The person who believes but God still doesn't do it. How about Paul? I have the thorn in my flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord and he still didn't show up. Well, I've got other reasons, Paul. I, I think of the man, the lame beggar at the, at, the, at the gate called Beautiful. We don't read about him to the book of Acts. But when you read about him in the book of Acts, it says he was there at that gate every day for 40 years. 
Did Jesus ever walk through that gate? Come on, man. He had to have walked through that gate. It's the gate. Jesus walked by that guy and didn't heal him. Well, he left it for the Peter to do it. But the, but the fact remains, Jesus didn't heal everyone. What about the reverse? So we know that if you have faith, that doesn't mean he'll always do it. doesn't mean he'll always do what you're imploring. What if you don't have faith? Have any of you in here, does your testimony, any of you sound something like, I hated God, I could care less about God, and then he just showed up and was like, you're saved. I mean, don't you hear testimonies like this? I wasn't seeking God, and he just, bam, showed up. Now what is that? You didn't have faith, and he did the greatest miracle in your life ever. And then we have this passage. This town didn't believe, but he still did some miracles there. Now he didn't do any miracles, he did some. Our temptation is to turn it into a formula. There's two formulas that we're tempted to do. Something like the health, wealth, gospel, where we say, if you believe, he'll always do it. Well, that can't be true. That doesn't match scripture. Or we do the opposite. Um, if, if you don't believe, then he'll never do anything. Well, sometimes he'll show up. Sometimes he'll show up on the faith of someone else. You know, you're praying for someone, they don't care, but you're praying for them. Or God just shows up like in Paul's life. Remember Paul? I don't know if people were praying for him or not. The text doesn't really, I don't think, tell us how many people were backing him up that way, but he's running around killing Christians. And he's on this road toward Damascus to go continue his spree. And Jesus shows up. Now, Paul didn't ask for it. Jesus just said, you know what? Sometimes, even when there's unbelief, I'm going to show up and do what I want. Because he's God, he retains the right to do what he wants. So we can't box God into a formula and say, God, I'm praying with belief, therefore you must do. You know, sometimes he doesn't. Or someone has no belief and he still shows up in their life. So what's the deal? Now, this is where I really wrestled with this passage, and I didn't want to bring those things up because then it's not nice and neat anymore. I thought of an illustration. You know, I've got kids. Now, when my kids behave, I want to reward them. Hopefully, I do great things with my kids. You know, once in a while, we'll go to Great America or something. I hate Great America. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that um, and go out on the Internet with that. Uh, you know, it's long lines. It's just not as fun anymore and whatever. Anyway. But the kids like it. The kids like going to the pool. And the kids like going to play in the backyard. We asked, Lincoln, what do you want to do for your birthday? I want to play in the backyard. It's so awesome. I'm like, cool. Tina, Tina's like, what else do you want to do? I'm like, shh, backyard. That's awesome. He said it's awesome. The backyard's great. We want to do great things for our kids. Now, their behavior has something to do with it, does it not? Well, it's a rhetorical question. It does. <laughs> in our house. In our house, it does. If they show a continued pattern of obedience, if they show a pattern where we can trust them with responsibilities and they're doing the things that they're supposed to be doing, something wells up in our hearts and we go, man, we can really bless these kids. You know, we can really take them out and, and do great things. Let's get, let's get that ice cream after dinner. You know, they're just doing so well. Ate all their veggies and they're just, they're doing the things that we expect them to do, we want them to do. Let's go get that ice cream sundae. In general, that's how it works. And they understand that. But it's not an exact formula. Things would get messy if it were an exact formula. If they, uh, if they behaved and ate their veggies at every meal, do I give them ice cream after every meal? Do I become trapped by that formula and go, oh my goodness, he ate the last green bean. Let's go to Dairy Queen again. Man, I might as well get a Dairy Queen card. 
you know, some kind of point system or something. You're killing me here. No, not every time. Well, then should I not eat my green beans? No, eat your green beans. And eating your green beans and that pattern of eating your green beans will show me that I'm going to show up in your life in ways that I wouldn't if you didn't eat your vegetables. Well, how about the other way? Do I ever reward them if they misbehave? Sure I do. Because that's called grace. I want to teach my kids mercy. I want to teach them grace. Sometimes they mess up and I go, you know what? Just don't do that again, all right? You're right, you're right, Dad. Let's go get a Sunday. Doesn't that make sense? But I can't go, no, every time you disobey, you never get, how far do you play that out? They're sinners. They can't be perfect. You'll never get ice cream, right? Same with God. Same with God. We can't pin him in a corner and go, I've got the faith now. You need to show up. Sometimes he doesn't. His prerogative. His wisdom. It's always going to be, his decision will always be for your best. But we may not understand that. Kids may not understand that ice cream after every single meal is not for their best. But they understand that I'm going to show up with ice cream more often. We're going to go out and do fun things more often. And with more joy in my demeanor when we do it. When they demonstrate a pattern of trust and obedience and responsibility. So the same is true with our relationship with the Lord. The problem is we kind of give up sometimes. We go, well, because it doesn't happen every time, I'm just not going to have that much faith, you know? But we have to be there with our trust and obedience, and then he'll show up in big ways. I'll close with this before we have our time of communion. The other day, was, I thought it was pretty windy. I look outside, and the branches are moving. I say, kids, let's, let's get some kites up in the air, right? And we go in the garage, and we get these kites. And some of them were more expensive than others. There's one that I got bought in an expensive shop. where It's a kite shop, and I bought it. And it wasn't the top of the line, but it's not one that you could just, you know, find in a Cracker Jack box. I don't know, you know. It's, it's nice. And then we got ones that, that are, you know, just regular kites. Like we go to, you know, Walgreens and buy a kite or something, regular. And so we take these kites and we try to get them up, and I'm having a hard time getting this kite up in the air, you know, and I'm, I'm running and I'm, I'm throwing it, I'm, I'm kicking it, I'm tossing it, and I'm not doing all that, but that's what I felt like. I'm like, where? And then, okay, then the wind stops. I'm like waiting for the wind to kick in. Then it kicks in, and I throw it up, and it's there, it's there, and then shoo, it just takes a nosedive and crashes into the asphalt. And uh, then I look around me, you know, uh, Raquel is like hot in the sun. Elias just did something. He's off. He's like, I'm going to ride my bike. You know? <laughs> and I'm up there like, I'm getting this kite, you know, in the air, you know. Um, our faith is like getting that kite up. The wind may not be there right now. The wind may not be there right now. But when it kicks in, your kite needs to be there. Your kite needs to be in the position. Your string needs to be untangled. And it needs to be in the right position so that when that wind kicks in, the wind may not, the wind is there. It's not there's, there's no wind. It just may not be blowing right now or it may not be blowing in the right direction that you're wanting right now. But when it's time to kick in and your kite's not up there, it's not going to happen. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you have no faith, you're like, eh, God is just an Old Testament. That just doesn't, he doesn't really do it. God exists, but he just doesn't really move really anymore. Well, then your kite's got holes in it. And it's stuck in the garage collecting dust. But if you know what, God is there. And he may not be blowing right now, but when he chooses to move, I want to be there. I'm going to leave my appliance plugged in so when the power kicks back on, this appliance goes into gear. Get it? Now, the reason why I was frustrated, I didn't tell you this part, is because I have a cousin 
He lives close to Lake Michigan, in Michigan, and he's got a professional kite. I didn't even know they existed. I mean, a pro kite. This thing is expensive. And it folds down into almost nothing, and it pops out. Now, this kite, it can be mildly windy. And it's got four strings, and the handles go like this. Okay? Four different ways to control this thing. And he lays it out there, and he pulls the string, and he just goes, boop, and it goes straight up. He just pulls tugs about an inch. Boom, it just flies straight up. And he's doing twirls, twists, loop-de-loops, whatever. I mean, it's, he's just doing all kinds of crazy stuff with it. He even parlayed that skill into kite surfing. Have you seen this? The surfboard is underneath your feet. Your feet are strapped in. It looks like a snowboard. And then you have a kite strapped to your, like a body harness. And as you control the kite to catch the wind, you're skipping across the water. People are over there like, you know, and you're just... You're just skipping across the water, man, you know, because the wind has got you. Now, it takes skill to manipulate that kite, and the reason why he was able to do it is because he got used to this complex kite. But that kite catches wind more often because it's a better kite. Now, what is faith? You can't go to the bookstore and just pluck it off the shelf. But it's not just the simplicity of Jesus is Lord either. He starts there. But you know how we know that faith can have complex levels? You know how we know that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul lists spiritual gifts. And each of those spiritual gifts, he says, you have that, you have this, you have the other thing, and everyone works together. Now when you look at that list, none of those things are things that all of us shouldn't have. The gift of wisdom, the gift of the utterance of wisdom. Should the rest of us not utter any wisdom? Should we all be, you know, bumbling idiots in the church? And only the one with the spiritual gift of wisdom, let's all turn to him or her because, you know, we're all dumb. No, we all should be learning in wisdom. But some people just have this gift that in that moment, they just see it all pieced together. Like Robert Nash in A Beautiful Mind, just all the numbers go, and you just see it in that moment. You go, man, I think it's this. And you go, oh my goodness, that's true. And I didn't get it before, but now that you uttered that wisdom, see, that's a special gift. The gift of hospitality. Should all the rest of us go, you're never allowed in my house. We have people in the church gifted for that. No, man, invite people to your house. But some people are specially gifted in a more complex, higher tier level of the ability to be hospitable people. Right? One of those gifts is the gift of faith. We all should have faith. But some people have that, that complex kite. You know, it's got all this stuff to it. But man, they catch wind more often than we do because of their, their level of faith. Now, faith is not go home and, and, and just, you know, tighten your fists and go, I'm really in visual. I'm going to visualize that job, visualizing that job. I'm going to get that job. That job is going to be great. That's, that's not faith. But faith is your level of understanding who Jesus is. Will I understand him better when I see him face to face than I do now? Yes. But can I see him better than I do now, even before then? Yeah, that's called growth. That's called maturity. You know why they were offended at him? He was teaching the word of God and they didn't like it. Therefore, they had unbelief. If you want to increase your faith for God to show up big ways in your life, sermons, 
Bible studies, devotionals, our daily bread. Start somewhere. Tune into radio stations where there's sermons playing. Listen to some. Download some of them. Uh, crack open the Bible. Different translations. Read it. Read a verse at a time. Memorize some of it. That begins to make your understanding of who Jesus is and what he can do more mature. And your kite becomes like a better kite. It goes from plastic to nylon, or I don't know what these things are made out of, you know? And, and then you get the tails added. You got a couple more strings there, and you develop a prayer uh, life that catches more of the moves of God because you're maturing in your understanding of who Jesus is. And so we learn Him, we understand Him, and we get, that's the God of the Old Testament, the, the New Testament. That is who I pray to. That is who Jesus is. I understand that. And then I implore him. I keep imploring him. I don't give up on it. I keep imploring. And I keep putting my kite up there. So when God's ready to move, the faith is there for him to show up in awesome ways. I'm going to ask the, uh, the ushers to come forward as we prepare for communion.